Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined uh, by Poppy today. You know, Poppy and I were were both uh, at one point when she was at Fletzy, I was at Fletzy at the same time in the legal division. Um, and uh, she's a former Fletzy uh, senior legal instructor herself. And um, and she's currently with the University of Pittsburgh, um, where she is the program, the coordinator for the legal studies program up there. And so um, I'll let you uh, introduce yourself there, Poppy. Okay, well, um, hey everyone. So like Bruce said, we used to work together at the Fletzy. I ended up there because my husband uh, was in federal law enforcement. So we ended up at Fletzy uh, through his department reassignment for a while where I taught and met Bruce. Uh, I've also worked as a state and federal prosecutor and I am currently teaching law and um, legal studies and administration of justice classes at the University of Pittsburgh. So let's talk about the qualified immunity and the qualified immunity battle. You know, I gave it a, an interesting, a catchy name. There's a lot going on out there today. I mean, we've got a, a qualified immunity is something you don't hear people talk about very much um, unless they're actually being sued. Um, but it's not something that that we, we talk about uh, over and over and over again. Um, and now it's got a, a newfound spotlight on it. Um, and I, to the point to where I called it the qualified immunity battle. Heck of a lot going on out there in the world of qualified immunity, which is why we wanted to do this special uh, two-hour presentation for you today. Now, there, the, you know, we got a lot of questions. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, confusion about the whole concept of qualified immunity. You see it on TV. I see it I see it on the news channels and it doesn't matter whether you're on the left-hand side of the dial or the right-hand side of the dial. Um, you hear a lot of folks uh, uh, they're talking about qualified immunity. They're talking about qualified immunity when they're talking about criminal prosecutions, which it makes absolutely no sense um, if you know what qualified immunity is. So there's clearly um, a lot of confusion out there. It's, a, it's an officer liability issue. Um, it's, a, it's a defense. Um, and uh, it's an officer liability issue, so it's an, a very important thing. It's very important for officers to fully understand and 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 uh, know what qualified immunity is all about. You know, Poppy, I was always taken back a little at Fletzy. I thought we should have taught more of this. You know, we really, um, even at Fletzy, we didn't go um, into qualified immunity uh, very much, except in the use of force block of training. Um, but uh, I, um, I always felt like we could we could have talked about it a little bit more. Today yeah, I'm, talk I'm sorry, go ahead. I think legal training generally was probably not the favorite of people attending Fletzy. So. Those are the where you always got the questions afterwards. And I do a lot of training now and um, and I'll get a lot of questions um, after the people don't kind of don't want to raise their hand. So today I'm going to talk about um, what qualified immunity is. And Poppy's going to help me out here. We're going to talk about when it applies. We're going to talk about what it actually does. Um, and then a little bit uh, about how it works. And so hopefully we can uh, kind of cut through a little bit of the confusion. This Hopefully this isn't one of those webinars where you're left with more questions than you had coming in. Hopefully when you leave today, you'll understand just a little bit more um, about qualified immunity and, and, and specifically how it relates to police officers and the use of force. I, I need to talk about 
immunity generally, before I jump into dive, do a deep dive or get into qualified immunity, I want to kind of put it into context and I want to talk about the whole concept of immunity generally. And it's a, and it is, um, although there are statutes that govern qualified immunity, it is, it is mostly a, um, a, a common law creature, a judicially created creature and, um, and developed um, from the concept of sovereign immunity, and and the, there's also the concept of absolute immunity, um, and then uh, and then qualified immunity. So let me just kind of go through it in turn. Now, sovereign immunity is a, a, a common law concept that carried over um, from England. That's why it's called sovereign, right? Uh, from the king or the queen. Uh, sovereign immunity basically uh, says that you cannot use the king's court to sue the king. So um, the the you could sue people. Um, you could bring a lawsuit against your neighbor for stealing your goat or, or your chicken or, or using, using your, your farmland or whatever, you know, back in the, in the, the common, the good old English common law days. Um, you, you could sue a lot of people, but you couldn't sue the king. And that was the concept of sovereign immunity. Um, you cannot sue the government. Now, sometimes um, the government waives its sovereignty. It waives its immunity. Um, and allows you to sue the, uh, the government for specific things. And we're talking about both state and federal government. This, the federal government uh, has sovereign immunity and the, uh, and the state government um, has sovereign immunity, except to the extent uh, that, that, that they waive it. So we've got this whole concept of sovereign immunity that prevents you from actually suing the government. But what about government employees? What about the people who do the work of the government, right? And, and that's where the concepts of absolute and qualified immunity come in. <clears throat> absolute immunity is a concept um, that, that deals with people in very important positions within the government. In order for them to do their job, they need to be totally immune from civil suit, from the harassment of, of suit, and maybe um, sometimes even a criminal prosecution. So uh, absolute immunity is a concept that where you get immunity if you were if when you're doing your job, um, even if you do it incorrectly or irresponsibly, you are going to get immunity. And there's very, very few government people that have that. Now, the most common um, titles, the most common groups that have absolute immunity without any qualification whatsoever are law, the judges and prosecutors. Um, and um, basically, um, and what that means is, is it's absolute. And it, it, even if what they did was wrong, if they did it while they were serving in that capacity, um, they can't be sued for it. But then qualified immunity is what goes out to the other government employees. They're, they're not given absolute immunity because their jobs uh, don't, don't meet the criteria, the two, the two prong criteria for it. Um, and that last group of people, uh, they get a group of government employees would get qualified immunity. And qualified means there's a qualification on it, right? They get immunity if, and that if is whatever the qualification is that comes after that, right? So, uh, and that would apply to law enforcement officers as well as other government employees. Uh, you got this, this whole concept of, of qualified um, immunity. And so that's just a, 
in general, uh, it's important for you to understand how you know immunity works and and uh, and the different sources of and where it comes from. And so uh, now that we've got that that broader context um, to work with, let's um let's get in there and define it a little bit. And you know, immunity from what? What is qualified immunity all about? Well, it is immunity from being sued um, in a civil suit uh, for doing your job. So it, it gives you it gives you um, protection, and the protection is not from payment. Um, it, protection from payment is called indemnification, right? It's protection from the actual lawsuit itself, protection from litigation. And so with qualified immunity, if you meet the qualification, if you meet the requirements in order to obtain the immunity, it protects you from being sued. And so if you are sued uh, as a government employee, um, if you are sued under a recognized cause of action for doing your job, then this, this uh, qualified immunity will protect you from um, from the actual process itself. It, like I said, it protects you from the process, not the payment. Protects you from the litigation. Um, but it's it's uh, if it didn't protect you from the process, if if it if you had a situation, if you had some type of uh, of of statute or something in place where they would actually um, you weren't protected from the process, but they would they would pay whatever judgment would you would receive against you. That is an indemnification type of thing, and so um, and so I wanted to point that out as well. So the the purpose, you know, what is the, the purpose of qualified immunity? And this is from a very very important case um, in the qualified Im immunity case, one of the more important ones um, actually. And we talk, we're going to talk about this a lot more in the. Uh, the reasonable officer in Black Lives Matter course. Um, but there's a, a Pearson. Pearson did a lot in the world of qualified immunity. Let me tell you just a handful of pages, the, the things that happened. But this is a quote, and it's important. Um, if you want to know what qualified immunity is all about, um, that pretty much sets it out. It doesn't get much clearer than that. And it's a balance. Qualified immunity is going to balance two very important interests. It, it, it balances uh, the need. Uh, to hold public officials accountable when they exercise power irresponsibly, so that's on one side, right? The needs, the the need to hold them accountable when they do something uh, irresponsibly, right? And on the other side of the balance is the need to protect those officials from harassment, distraction, and liability when they perform their duties uh, reasonably. So, um, the, not just liability, right? Harassment, distraction. And liability. It keeps them. If they get sued every, you know, every other day for something they've done, um, it it creates a, a a distraction. And then you can you can use the judicial process um, as a harassment, right? And so, um, like, look, we don't we want them we want them to be held accountable, right? But we want to shield them from this harassment, distraction, and liability when they when they perform their duties reasonably instead of irresponsibly. And so that's kind of now you're getting a feel for what the whole the purpose of qualified immunity. It's the reason that it's qualified, right? With without um, with absolute immunity, you don't get the first part of this. With qualified immunity, you get the accountability that you don't get with absolute. Um, um, immunity. That is why 
qualified immunity is qualified. That is the purpose of it, to uh, provide for that accountability uh, factor in there. And so um, that's what qualified immunity is all about. I mean, it's always important to know what the, the fundamental purpose of qualified immunity is. And for us, it's this balance, right? So can I jump in for a second? Please? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say, because I think I would I would qualify that. <laughs> not to, no pun intended, right? But I would qualify that uh, by saying that that was the intention, right? And so the allegations currently are that we're not getting that balance, right? That police are effectively immune from civil suit and immune from accountability. That's that's the you mean that, you mean absolutely immune, right? That that's that qualified immunity has effectively become the equivalent of absolute immunity when it comes to law enforcement, in particular, use of force incidences. And of course, we'll talk about why, what's behind that, right? And then what yeah, that um, coming up. But I think it's also helpful uh, just to remember because, like you pointed out, there seems to be some confusion in the media as to what qualified immunity is all about. Um, it, it is helpful to remember that this is only one avenue of redress, right? This is what the citizen can do on their own. They can sue a police officer. It's not the only one. Agency discipline isn't barred or even impacted by qualified immunity. So agencies can discipline officers uh, for situations where they have where they are concerned or um, displeased with their conduct. And of course, there are criminal cases that can be filed as well that are totally and completely separate and qualified immunity is not a defense uh, to prosecution right it's well, not that's, a defense that's right so so why on earth would um would everyone be focused i mean let, let me let me just say being uh, married to a police officer even a federal law enforcement officer i can tell you i don't think we're in the wealthiest category of americans right so um there is of course a sense of justice that comes with uh, being successful in a lawsuit, but why worry so much about civil suits against police officers, right? Who aren't known for being particularly wealthy? Uh, wh why, why the focus on that? I mean, I have some ideas. I'm, if you want to jump in here, feel free. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's just. First of all, there are a lot of situations to where, when you're talking about qualified immunity and law enforcement officers, you're usually talking about constitutional torts, and there are um, uh, at least on the federal side anyway, and we're going to talk about Bivens in 1983 in just a little bit. But I think that they, they're usually, there's a, there's money. Yeah. Right. And so you've got a lot of lawyers out there and they're not going to give up an opportunity to, to get it a pot of money if they, especially if they haven't, they're not, they're not wealthy, but a lot of them carry, you know, liability insurance. And if yeah. you've got, you know, yeah. you've got a family of, of someone, you, know, you have somebody, pulls a gun on a police officer and gets shot and, 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 and dies and the family, um, they might want justice, but the lawyers want money typically. I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know that the, the motivation to actually bring the suit um, is, is necessarily a, an important part of it, but it, the, the balancing act did include the concept, at least acknowledging the concept that officers are people of government actors would be sued as a form of harassment, that the lawsuit itself would be a form of harassment. So, um, yeah, no, I, I I agree with you, and I wouldn't begin to speculate on why people bring lawsuits, which is why I want to be clear. I think there are motivations other than money. Um, but I think what what I was more getting at is it's very very difficult at the federal level to prosecute a police officer for um, 
an, a use of force, an excessive use of force or a failure to intervene, which is actually a civil suit, right? Um, right. At federal level only. So if you look at the federal criminal statutes, which we, if you, you mentioned, we should have taught more of this at Fletzi. I don't think we taught the federal criminal statutes to but one agency, maybe, That's right? right. Barely That's right. Um, and, and you know what, there might be a reason for that because they're barely used, right? And so I think it's just helpful for people to understand that the focus on these civil suits and qualified immunity um, being the target of all this attention in the media is, is in part because criminal prosecutions federally are very rare, right? And that's, that's due to the elements that have to be met, um, as you and I have discussed previously, in order to prosecute a police officer for excessive force or any violation of someone's constitutional rights, the government has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the that the conduct was willful. So not just intentional, not just that the officer intended the physical action, but that they intended to violate someone's constitutional rights. This right. is really, really, really hard to do, right? And then if you want to prosecute uh, an officer who maybe was there and didn't intervene, and you want to do a criminal prosecution, you actually have to prove a conspiracy right. for a criminal prosecution. Right. I just want to point, thought it might be helpful to point out how mm -hmm. difficult the criminal prosecutions are at the federal level. At the state level, of course, they have all state crimes available. Um, and so it might be a little bit more available there. Um, but really at the federal level, the main form of redress in the courts is the civil suit. And this is the defense available to officers, defense from well, suit. You know, I mean, it really, I'm getting just a little bit ahead of um, myself here because there's, we're going to talk about this coming up in a couple of slides, but to the extent we're on it, um, you know, it used to be that difficult. It used to be that difficult to bring a civil suit. I mean, before um, we're, we're talking use of force, you know, prior to Graham versus Connor, of course, we had the Tennessee versus Garner decision that came out a few years before that that kind of intimated at it. But in Graham, the court, um, basically just, you know, change that standard for the civil suits, because prior to that, that's exactly what you had to, you had to prove in the civil suit, you had to prove that malicious, the right. malicious specific intent of the officers, which would made it very, very difficult. I was fortunate enough to, to get a couple hours of Woody Kinnett's time, a very generous um, person. He, he was the attorney that represented to Thorne Graham. He's still in practice in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, um, graciously agreed to talk to me for an extended period of time um, for a podcast episode. And, um, you know, off when we were off microphone, he was talking about, you know, it was just impossible. It was impossible to sue um, police officers because the standard was that high in the civil side as well. So it was, it was after, it was after the Graham decision, which kind of made it easier to sue police officers that the qualified immunity became really, really important. And that's why you don't see, um, you don't see much discussion about it um, prior to the 1980s. In fact, the, when you look at the case law um, the, in the Harlow case, Harlow versus Fitzgerald, I mean, that mm -hmm. was 1982 when that decision came out. So uh, um, I'm old, but I'm not that old. And that's, uh, I, can, I can remember the, the 80s. So, uh, so there you go. Um, I, I, I wanted to talk about, about the nature of qualified immunity because this is where things get really kind of difficult. I mean, it's, when you're talking to lawyers um, and you're talking to other attorneys, especially trial attorneys, they can understand some of the, uh, these concepts. But um, 
we don't I don't think we do a good enough job with LEO so I wanted to spend just a minute talking about the nature of qualified immunity first it's important to point out that it's a, it's an affirmative defense okay let me let me uh, versus a, def, a regular defense so let me let me explain um, in, in kind of in layman terms what the difference is right um, when when someone accuses you of something and they make allegations, let's say that you've got a we're talking about civil suit, so let's talk about a, a civil um, a civil uh, complaint, and they allege that you did X, Y, and Z, and they need to prove that they have to show um, beyond a preponderance of the evidence as the civil law standard, they have to show that you did X, Y, and Z beyond the preponderance of the evidence. That's their burden, right? If you say, I did X, but I didn't do Y and Z, now your defense is you did not do what they accused you of doing. An affirmative defense um, basically is where they say you did X, Y, and Z, and you say, I did X, I did Y, and I did Z. You're absolutely right but I'm not liable anyway. That is an affirmative defense. It is something that relieves you from liability, even if you did what they said that you did. And, um, um, and that is the difference between a defense and an, an affirmative defense. When, when um, a plaintiff files a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer for excessive use of force, which is where our focus is gonna be, even though we haven't quite got there yet, um, when someone files an excessive force uh, complaint against a law enforcement officer, either in a, a Bivens action um, in federal court or in a Title 42, Section 1983 suit, what I just refer to as a, a 1983 suit, um, again in federal court, um, the, the defendant raises the defense of, of affirmative defense. They raise the affirmative defense of qualified immunity. So the police officer gets sued for excessive force. The, um, the police officer responds and says, uh, invokes, says, I'm, I'm entitled to qualified immunity. The burden is on the plaintiff to show that the, that the officer is not entitled to qualified immunity. And the way this is done um, is through a motion for summary judgment. Now, the, the, the motion for summary judgment is filed. Um, and, uh, and just to kind of explain this this big picture stuff, this concept of motion for summary judgment, you know, there's two different questions that have to be answered in a, in the trial, right? There are the questions of law and there are the questions of fact. And when you have a jury trial, the questions of fact are purely for the jury. And the questions of law are purely for the judge. The judge answers all the questions of law and the jury has to determine what happened, right? There are the finders of fact, the triers of fact. What a motion for summary judgment, what you're doing is you're saying that, look, even if you take the facts mm -hmm. that, the, that as, they're, as, they're, you know, as they are, as the plaintiff alleges, as a matter of law, I'm entitled to a judgment in my favor without it ever even going to a jury. And that's what a motion for summary judgment is all about. And, and so what the officer would do when they're sued, they would file the motion for summary judgment. They would raise the affirmative defense of qualified immunity. And now the burden shifts to the plaintiff to show 
that um, the, the, the officer um, that the officer didn't meet the criteria, which we're um, we're going to talk about in just a second. But I wanted to kind of lay the groundwork. So we're we're finally getting now to the point to where if I can find my cursor. And Oops. Bruce, can I just clarify on um, because sure. I think it's helpful. So even if an officer asserts the the affirmative defense of qualified immunity, right? And and then the court will consider the facts as alleged by the plaintiff. So in our scenario, the plaintiff is the person who is suing on behalf, is either the, the alleged victim of the excessive force or the family member if the person is deceased, right? Um, the officer is not then obligated, should qualified immunity be denied to agree to those facts, right? That the, the idea, I just want to make it clear, the idea is that because the court is considering just dismissing the case, right? The, the case goes away, the officer does not get sued, they will consider the, the facts in a light most favorable to the person who is trying to sue. So it's the right. facts by the plaintiff. So the officer is admitting for purposes of the motion, right? Even And I like the way you phrase it at the end. Even if all of these things are true, right? I'm still entitled to immunity from the lawsuit. That's correct. And and it's uh, and summary judgments can go either way. And it, obviously, it's uh, it's always the facts are always taken in in um, in uh, the light most favorable to the non-moving party. Right. And um and if the if the facts are just totally different, I mean, if the the allegations, I had a student, a former student, and um from from the land management uh, program training. And she went somewhere, um, she was up in the Pacific Northwest somewhere. I, I remember because she was in the Ninth Circuit. Mm -hmm. um, and she was sued for excessive use of force. Well, you know, one part of the problem that, that she had was that the allegations that this person was making were just totally, right. they were totally false. And um, they weren't, um, they're not what happened. And there wasn't any, there wasn't any body camera video or there wasn't anything, um, that recorded anything back at that point in time years ago. And, and so basically it was her word against his word. And right. when the court's confronted with that, um, you might not get your motion for summary judgment because now you've got a, now you've got genuine issues of material fact that the trier of fact is going to have to sort out. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a, it's not an automatic. And uh, that's why they, it's important to point out those facts, um, you know, most favorable in light of the, of, in the light most favorable to the non-moving party. Um, so that right. it. you might right. not get it. Well, and that's um, why you also never assume just because qualified immunity is denied an officer, you should not assume that that uh, means they did it, right? Or no, that what did was horrible. Um, that that you're gonna well have to go to trial, that's gonna have to go to trial and you're gonna, you're gonna have to let the jury determine right. it. Right. Yes. So it's a, it's very this is very very important to point out. I should have given it more prominence than a, just a single line um, in in this slide. The qualified immunity in law enforcement it is a protection from civil suits only. Qualified immunity is not a defense to criminal prosecution. Qualified immunity has no place um, in a criminal prosecution. So it is. Um, on the on the at least at the on the federal level we're, that's what we're talking right now um, it is only protection from a civil suit there are federal causes of action 
that are that are brought in federal court in, in civil suits and there are state causes of action that are brought in state court now if you're a federal leo then um all you've got is you know um is bivens in federal court right um, and but if you're a state law enforcement officer you've got two sets of causes of actions now that you have to worry about right you've got the causes of action in federal court um, and you've got the causes of action in state court just a quick little word on cause of action the whole concept is you cannot um, you cannot sue someone successfully for just anything right um, you, you might see somebody doing something that you personally don't like um, that doesn't mean that there's a recognized cause of action um, that you can bring a lawsuit right but we've got um uh, you know, with all the, the covid stuff going on you know, people on edge and about wearing masks and gloves and stuff. Poppy, you're up in Pennsylvania. I think you folks are a little bit tighter locked down. I'm down here in Florida and it's like a free-for-all. I'm in, I'm on Amelia Island right now looking out my office window at people everywhere and I don't see a single person, you know, wearing a mask. Well, if you think people really ought to wear masks, um, even uh, um, and they're not legally obligated to do so, and you walked up to them and, and, and you didn't like the fact they weren't wearing a mask, you couldn't sue them for it. As there's not a recognized cause of action for it here is you have to have a cause of action before you can proceed in a civil suit against somebody it has to be a legally recognized cause of action and we have these causes of action from um, civil action both on the federal side and the state side so let's talk a little bit we're going to spend the, the rest of this first part talking about the federal side before we we jump into um, what's going on in Colorado and let me explain to you there are two federal causes of action so now we are now we are getting down uh, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty right we've got two causes of action we have a statutory cause of action um, in, in title 42 section 1983 and this creates a statutory cause of action where you can bring uh, a civil suit against a state actor, um, someone who is uh, acting under the color of state law, right? Like a state law enforcement officer, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, it could be anybody uh, acting under the color of, of state law. Um, and this person, this state government person has, uh, has violated one of your federally protected rights, either statutory, federally protected by statute, are federally unprotected under the Constitution, right? And so uh, for law enforcement officers with use of force, this is, um, if it's a state law enforcement officer, um, if you wanted to sue a state law enforcement officer for excessive use of force, um, it would, in federal court, it would be a 1983 action. That would be your cause of action, and that would be the basis of the civil suit in federal court for the state actor violating this person's federally protected right. Well, Congress didn't pass a statute, Congress didn't pass a statute that created a cause of action for um, protected rights, federal rights being violated by federal actors. You know, 100, 150 years ago, we didn't have as much federal law, as much federal criminal law, as many federal law enforcement officers um, as we do today, uh, but uh, 
but Congress to this day has not created a statutory uh, cause of action uh, against federal law enforcement officers for violating rights. And so the Supreme Court did it themselves. The Supreme Court in the in the Bivens the Bivens case um, versus the six unknown agents. Uh, basically, uh, Bivens had his Fourth Amendment rights violated. A bunch of officers busted into his apartment and ransacked and searched it. They found they found drugs and stuff that was a it was drug enforcement folks. Um, they found what they they were looking for. They just went about it in total violation of the Fourth Amendment. And um, and so Bivens uh, he sued, wanted to sue. He didn't have a cause of action, right? It kept 1983 didn't really fit, but it was the only thing he had. So he kept filing under 1983 um, and getting the cases getting thrown out. It goes all the way at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is like, well, you know, 1983 does not apply because they were federal actors and not state actors. However, we are going to create this cause of action um, um, where you can sue. Uh, federal law enforcement officers or federal uh, federal actor, federal government um, actor for violating uh, these, these particular constitutional rights. Now, Bivens is very limited. 1983 is wide open. If you're a state or local law enforcement officer, it's any, any statutory or constitutionally protected federal right. Um, you can be sued under 1983, but Bivens is very, very constricted. It's very limited. Um, it's Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment due process um, and Eighth Amendment, so it's 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 limited. They're, the court's really unwilling to extend it any further. They keep inviting Congress to do that, but they they want they don't want to do it. So the good news is for the federal LEOs, it's very limited. The bad news is Fourth Amendment is your searches and your seizures, and it's uh, and including your use of force. And so uh, use of force, if you sued a federal law enforcement officer. Um, it would be done in a Bivens action. Um, if you sued a state law enforcement officer for excessive use of force, it would be in a 1983 action. Both of them, both of them in federal court. And of course, then it would be up to the officer to raise the defense of qualified immunity. And then we're going through um, the whole qualified immunity bit. So this was a slide we probably should have had up a few minutes ago when we were talking. Um, you know, use of force. And, and Poppy, you kind of alluded to this, um, but I, I, I kind of wanted to, to point it out specifically. You know, use of force is a Fourth Amendment issue, right? But but the Supreme Court has held, and um, in fact, it was a, a Ninth Circuit case that went up to the Supreme Court not too long ago, I believe, um, that use of force, even though it's a Fourth Amendment decision, it doesn't come into play when um, for the purposes of the exclusionary rule. Um, so. Um, and also, it doesn't. Um, if if you have an unlawful search or seizure that leads to the use of force, I think the Ninth Circuit had said, if your search or your seizure is unreasonable, then no degree of force can be reasonable. And so, if you have a confrontation with someone that comes about as a result of an unlawful stop, an unlawful search, um, then your use of force on them will not be. Um, it, it won't be reasonable since your search wasn't reasonable. Well, that means basically you couldn't have a law enforcement officer protect themselves even when they made a, an unlawful stop. You know, someone pulled a gun on them or whatever. And so um, the court shot that down um, pretty, pretty well. Uh, I, I refer to 
Fourth Amendment decisions is the Fourth Amendment dominoes. And then, you know, you've got the attenuation doctrine under the Utah v. Streff decision, all that. Use of force doesn't come into play. Even though it's a Fourth Amendment issue, it is not a part of those Fourth Amendment dominoes, those chain of Fourth Amendment decisions when you're looking for mistakes in order to um, in order to uh, uh, have invoked the exclusionary rule. Also, when you violate someone's Fourth Amendment rights, if um, if you if you you know you do something like you stop them, you make a traffic stop, and it's been determined that you didn't have what you needed to make the stop, that you didn't have the requisite level, the reasonable suspicion minimum that you need in order to make the stop. What were the damages? You don't have a whole lot of damages there, so it's it, you're not going to see a, a, you know you're not going to see as many of those types of, of cases as you will with use of force. So use of force lends itself to civil suits against police officers because the damages are typically high. When someone is suing for use of force, um, it's typically because someone has either been seriously injured or they have died. And so the measurement of damages from a plaintiff's attorney, from a, a trial attorney's point of view, are fairly significant, um, and uh, and there's and it won't come in it won't come into play much in the in the criminal any criminal decisions um, because it it it's limited applicability with respect to the exclusionary rule. And so as a result, these use of force cases. Are pri there are primary source of qualified immunity decisions. We get a lot of use of force cases. I I read cases that every I I read every search and seizure case that comes out on the appellate level, state and federal, every week. Um, I get them sent straight to my email by box, and I read them all. And I read the use of force decisions. Um, a lot of the of the use of force decisions are in civil suits against police officers, and it's these qualified immunity decisions. That are answering the question, or at least ought to be. Um, there's a segue for you as to yeah. what uh, what constitutes this reasonable use of force. So I just I kind of wanted to to point that out. Do you have anything to add to that, Poppy? No, I agree with you 100%. I think that's helpful. And so for the qualified immunity for the use of force, um, an officer is they're entitled. And the rule is that they're entitled to qualified immunity unless he or she violated a clearly established constitutional right. So there are two, there are two prongs. When you're talking about qualified immunity for the use of force, right? um, and remember who has the burden, um, and because once qualified immunity is raised as a defense, it, the burden is on the plaintiff to show the officer is not entitled to it. The 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 plaintiff is going to have to show that the officer violated a constitutional right and that the constitutional right was clearly established at the time it was violated. Now, I've got them shoved together into one sentence here, but there are, there are I mean, I used it um, as a, an adjective, right, um, instead of separating it out, um, but it's it, either way, it's, it, it's the same point. It has, there has to be a violation of a constitutional right, and that constitutional right has to be clearly, clearly established at the time, um, at the time um, that the, the actions, uh, the act took place. And, um, and, uh, and that's where it gets a little tricky. It can get a little tricky if you, for your use of force folks, and you know your use of force cases, you clearly know 
um, you clearly know the Tennessee uh, versus Garner case, right? And you've got the, um, um, which came out before Graham. A lot of folks, a lot of folks are thinking, well, they they made their decision kind of based on a Fourth Amendment type of argument. Um, so that must have come out after Graham. No, it didn't. It, pre it predated Graham by several years. Um, but it was when the court first started going in that direction with this concept of reasonableness, um, especially with deadly force, uh, when the Memphis police officer uh, uh, shot that 15-year-old. Uh, um, so here's the deal. Right? In that particular case, the court, the Supreme Court said that shooting someone who is unarmed simply to keep them from getting away is a violation of their constitutional right, right? Um, uh, their rights. But it was the rule of law in a majority of the states, and I know in all the southern states that was the rule of law. Um, and, and so that officer got qualified immunity because it wasn't clearly established until that case. And so it has, it has to be a constitutional right that's violated and it has to be clearly established um, that um, right at that particular time. And it, and it's, it, it requires a degree of um, specificity. You can't, um, you can't talk in general terms, right? It, the, the facts and circumstances have to be um, clear enough to where um, a reasonable officer would be on notice that um, their actions are, uh, are unconstitutional in, in that regard. They're violating this right. A very interesting concept. And uh, my kids have a real tough time. Um, I talk about, you know, I was I was a teenager in the 70s. The drinking age was 18 when I was uh, in high school. And so we had a drinking in high school was a was the norm. Let me tell you, um, in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia, in 1977 and 78, that was going to that was going to happen. Uh, by golly, that was the deal. But I tell my kids, I'm like, look, you know, when the police came up to us at Stone Mountain, uh, Stone Mountain Park, right? And we're hanging out, throwing the Frisbee, drinking beers with Coca-Cola labels wrapped around them that you could go get at Spencer Gifts, right? When the police told us to freeze, you know, I, I said this to my kids not too long ago, we're all, that they were all here um, um, for Thanksgiving or something. Uh, and I uh, said, so you know what we did? And my son said, man, I bet you ran. I'm like, no, I bet I didn't because they would shoot you in the back. That was the rule of law, right? All the way up until the early 1980s, that was the rule of law. And so it wasn't clearly established that you couldn't do that until that case. And so that officer um, actually got qualified immunity. Use of force is a Fourth Amendment issue. It's based upon objective reasonableness. What do government searches and seizures have to be? Reasonable. You know, so what is the force that have that's used in order to effectuate a search or a seizure have to be? It has to be reasonable. And, um, the concept of objective reasonableness, which is almost, if you think about it, and we get into this a lot more in the reasonable officer and a Black Lives Matter course that we're going to be uh, presenting on July 21st. Um, but if you think about it, it's really an oxymoron uh, because reasonableness by its very definition is subjective. What's reasonable to one person might, might not be reasonable to another. Um, it's a very subjective concept. Reasonableness is very subjective. So how do you how do you take away that subjectivity? You just put the word objective in front of it, right? Objectively reasonable. Um, and so it's a it's kind of a uh, an interesting legal. It's a legal it's a legal creature. Uh, don't go up to a scientist and start talking about objective reasonableness. That's a um, that's that's a, a concept that's kind of foreign to them. 
Um, and so um, uh, I want to get down to this last point uh, here on the on here before we uh, before we start jumping into we, we still we, we're still we're doing good for for time wise. Um, well, let me talk about this this third bullet. Uh, an officer will be entitled to qualified immunity for use of force unless the force was clearly unreasonable. It has to be it has to be established um, and it has to be unreasonable. Now, this isn't a use of force seminar. This isn't a use of force uh, uh, presentation. I don't want to get into the whole start talking about the gram factors and and all of that um, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, again, that's something we'll do coming up here. Um, in this other presentation, but uh, but it's important um, it's important that you underst understand the whole concept that you know it, it has to be unreasonable. The, the the use of force has to be unreasonable. I'll also throw out there that we've got the concept of the reasonable officer um, uh, with uh, in and under a totality of the circumstances without the benefit of 2020 hindsight. You take the the cumulative uh, the cumulative uh, ruling from the Graham decision and apply that to these these cases right and we have to and we have to look at whether or not it was unreasonable what does that mean and if you're looking if you're talking about reasonableness in the use of force then it, it leads to the notion that it's possible for you to get qualified immunity for reasonable mistakes you know, you could be mistaken um, you could be mistaken about um, a fact um, after the fact you discover i mean when you get the you get the suicide by cop you get the you get the cases to where you know a 12 year old is carrying what appears to be um a nine millimeter um you know a semi-automatic through a park somewhere and all indications are is that that's a that's a firearm right and and uh, I tell you, a 12-year-old pulling a trigger of a 40 cal or a 9 millimeter doesn't make that round any less lethal when it hits somebody, uh, just because it's a minor um, pulling the trigger. You've got someone with a firearm, um, and um, and you believe it's a firearm. It's a, your belief that is a firearm is is a reasonable belief. And this person, uh, you're a, a law enforcement officer, and and this person drops or this person a. Uh, Drops down and points the firearm to you at, right at you, um, and um, I mean, and it, you end up shooting in that person and shooting, maybe even killing the person. And it turns out that it's a toy gun. It's not a real firearm. Um, you, it was a mistake. There was a mistake of fact there. Um, this person actually didn't pose a threat to to you or to anyone, right? The question isn't whether or not it you're you were correct in fact. The 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 question is whether if you make a, a mistake, was it a reasonable mistake? And qualified immunity protects law enforcement officers from reasonable mistakes. And, um, and, that's, um, and that's a really important, um, a really important uh, concept there to, uh, to. And Bruce, I would add too that it's, it's not, you are, I agree with you there, it's reasonable mistakes are certainly covered, but also reasonable judgment, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe Maybe you don't know if you have a suspect uh, with a weapon and you have a report, say, from dispatch that the weapon's unloaded. Do you have to trust that report from a witness? Right. No. Right? No, you Is don't. It no. Is it reasonable for you to say, you know, I'm not I'm not going to believe that I'm going to assume that gun is loaded until 
have an opportunity to determine that for myself. And the courts have said yes. So it might be situations where you're not necessarily mistaken, but you just don't have all the information. So the judgment, right. the court is going to look at the judgment you make, and they're not going to say, were you right? They're going to ask, were you reasonable? Were, you, were your actions objectively reasonable? And again, under that reasonable officer standard, um, right. which is kind of lost, um, um, and not, you know, which is a little bit different than just a, an ordinary, uh, reasonable person, right? Yeah. So, so you what's going to, I'm now? sorry. Do you want to talk about that at all, Bruce, now, or do you want to let that go? Um, about the whole concept of the reasonable, the reasonable officer. Versus the reasonable person. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. And, um, we're going to, we're going to go into depth in that quite a bit, um, on the 21st. And so, uh, I mean, that's to, to cover that with any degree of, uh, adequacy to do to do justice to it would take a considerable amount of time and so um, I want to throw it out there you might call it a, an unfair tease but um, I'm gonna I want to uh, at least make folks aware of that so we've got I wanted them to know the rule of law the general in general terms the rule of law for Graham so mm -hmm. you could understand what qualified immunity would give you you know the sure. fact that the fact that um, you might be mistaken but if your mistake was reasonable at the time it was made um, and not 2020 hindsight, um, then you will still be entitled to qualified immunity. And a lot of people have problems with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people have serious problems with that. I'm, and I, I, we go into that too in the, in the reasonable officer and Black Lives Matter course. Um, sure. I even have a few, uh, a few audio clips with permission from some folks um, that might be a little bit surprising as to what their their thoughts are on that. But you know, given the situation that we're in right now, you know, given the this the the move, given the perception, given um you know the assertions that um you know um, that police officers are inherently racist and it's a systemic problem and um and 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 I don't want to get into all of that either. But it's taking the current climate for what it is, you know. What's going to happen to qualified immunity? What's going to happen to it on the state level? But, you know, what for our purposes right now, what's going to happen to it on um, the federal level? You know, the qualified immunity is a creature of the court, right? There's um, we don't have any statutory. Um, we don't have any statutory language regarding qualified immunity. Um, it's totally governed by the Supreme Court in these series of decisions that have come out. Uh, since 1982, but you know, what will the will the Supreme Court change qualified immunity as a result of 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 you know what's happening in the current climate? I think Poppy, you had some information about that. Yeah, I, I think we have our answer, and we got our answer this month. If not, I would think it was last week. Can I? Sh is there a way for me to share my screen, Bruce? Yeah. I don't. See yeah, I'm oh. gonna give you. I'm gonna switch it over to you right now. Let's see. So see my. Uh, I've just pulled up a, an, an article. You could, these are a dime a dozen. You can find them. But the Supreme Court was recently offered the opportunity to hear some 10 cases on qualified immunity, its own doc, you know, its own doctrine, the court-created doctrine. And I think there was a sense that the fact that court even considered, uh, if you if you if you're not familiar with how the support the Supreme Court case docket works. Uh, the court ha the court will accept cases and consider them 
for a grant of certiorari. I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly. So we say cert is either denied or it's it's granted. So it took 10 different cases involving lower court decisions, granting or rejecting qualified immunity to government officials. A number of them were police officers. And as Bruce explained, the reasons for a number of them were cases involving excessive force claims. And the court subsequently denied cert, meaning it refused to even hear, even entertain the substance of all of these cases. Some of them it denied, I think two or three of them, a couple, maybe about a month ago, at the end of May, it bound over the remaining cases. And then uh, this month it denied cert, meaning it declined to hear, as you can read in the article, I guess it was the eight remaining cases uh, involving qualified immunity. So what does this mean? It means the court, at least at this juncture, is not going to clarify, um, eliminate, or really do anything, the Supreme Court, with the qualified immunity doctrine that it created, mm. which basically leaves it to the legislature. As a, looking at what you presented here, there were eight cases and seven of the eight, um, what was it, seven of the eight, um, yeah, yeah were the plaintiffs that were, in a majority of these cases, qualified immunity is being granted, and the, and the plaintiffs are appealing the grant of qualified immunity. It's not the it's not the other way around. Usually, and um, I don't want to pick on the Ninth Circuit, um, but usually, at least historically, over the last several years, when you have seen qualified immunity denied um, going up to the Supreme Court, it is the Ninth Circuit that's denying it and the Supreme Court saying, overruling them, saying, nope, uh, it's got to be clearly established. That seems to be the, the plot there. Yeah, it's six of the seven cases. Um, yeah it was the, the qualified immunity had been granted. And mm -hmm. so it uh, doesn't look like they're gonna, the courts are gonna expand it a whole lot. Um, no, what about, I, I'm sorry. The article points out the court could still take up other cases involving qualified immunity. Um, so it's not that it's Im impossible for the Supreme Court to revisit the doctrine, but it seems highly unlikely, right? They had 10 they were interested in, they looked at them, they rejected all of them. Um, and I think if you see and can see in the slide right now, if I switch over, there is there's a written dissent from the Supreme Court in one of them by Justice Thomas, who has. Was that the dog bite case? Yes. Yes, it is. The dog bite case. Um, police officers released a dog to apprehend a suspect and the dog bit him. The, the allegation, remember, this is the facts as alleged by the plaintiff. Right. Were that he'd already surrendered. Right. So he had his arms up in the air. The dog was released. The dog bit him. Um, so there's, there's, I'm going to guess a factual dispute here, but we don't know because they didn't, uh, well, I don't know because I didn't read the documents behind the case, but they, they didn't take the case. So what's really interesting about this dissent is that Justice Thomas, he died, for those of you who are, who, you know, were interested in Bruce's summary of the history of the qualified immunity doctrine, Justice Thomas goes through it again in this dissent and, um, you know, greater detail with case names and whatnot. So you might. Uh, enjoy reading it. But he also, what what Justice Thomas flags as problematic in my reading of this dissent with the qualified immunity doctrine isn't what we were just talking about, right? It's not the reasonable officer standard. He flags the issue of the clearly established law as something that that ought to be revisited. Um, mm -hmm. So you can read it for yourself and see if you see if you agree. Um, but 
who knows, right? I mean, we're always looking at what the justices are saying to try to divine their future decisions. Um, well, what about, you know, I mean, that gets us to the next question. What, if anything, um, will Congress will Congress do? Um, is there any, you know, is there movement afoot? You know, what's going on in um, the House? You know, I've heard about, you know, a House bill and Senate bills and that the House has rejected the Senate bill regarding police reform. Um, mm -hmm. What's in the, is, is the House considering some type of limitation on qualified immunity? It is. It is. Um, and I don't know the status of that bill right now, but, you know, I have another article pulled up from Forbes. And again, you can find this, but there is a bill. Um, Do you have I, it? I don't, ah, you know, I pulled, I have the article. I pulled the bill. Here's why I just kept the article up. The bill itself, it says that the summary is in progress, so it must be at a pretty early stage. Um, so if you go right. to the actual you know, Congress's website, they'll often summarize bills oh, for sure. hundreds sure. of pages long, right? So this one has not yet been summarized, so the page itself is pretty unhelpful. But um, but in any event, you can certainly find articles on this too. There is a bill presently uh, before the House to that will, among other things, would abolish qualified immunity. Oh, abolish it. Get rid Straight of it all. Shit. Yep, gone. No, I don't. I mean, I'm not a congressional scholar, so I. No, I know, I'm with you. Likelihood of success. I, I mean, my general uh, impression is that not a ton is getting through all the way through both houses, but, um, yeah. you know, in this political environment, who's to say? Yeah, yeah, and I and that'd be um, and that would definitely be a uh, for the especially for um. Well, for everyone, I mean, whether it's 1983 or Bivens, uh, that would not be a that would not be a good thing to have the totally, totally done away with. Let's go ahead now and take a look at what's going on in Colorado, because that's clearly uh, clearly a driving for a lot of people talking about it. A lot of folks um, with, you know, webinars and opinions and everything else. And, and, and that's great. And opinions, opinions, wonderful. Um, but I'm 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 not here philosophically to talk. I want to see what you know what is actually happening in in with qualified immunity in the state of Colorado. You know what in the world um, is going on. And before I, if I get started on the Senate bill, which was a Senate bill 20-217 or SB 217, I think they call it. I want to make you aware of the Colorado Constitution. Now Article Two. Um, of the Colorado Constitution is basically their their Bill of Rights. There's a bunch of of, of listed rights in Article Two, um, and they're broken down into sections, right? And you go through each of these sections, and it's a and it's a and it's a different right. And they look they look very similar to the Bill of Rights that are in the United States Constitution. They get a little, um, you know, like most states, then they. They make a few minor changes here and there. Um, and I guess they feel like it's important to. But Section 7 of the Colorado Constitution is security of person and property, searches, seizures, and warrants. This is their Fourth Amendment equivalent. And if you look at it, um, you know, the people shall be secure in their persons, homes, and effects. You know, in the, in the Fourth Amendment, it's persons, uh, houses, papers, in effect. But I mean, it's it's fundamentally the same, right? Um, from unreasonable searches and seizures. So there's your there is your uh, functional equivalent to the Fourth Amendment's right 
And then the remainder is the for, the, their functional equivalent of the Fourth Amendment Warrants Clause. No warrant shall issue or no warrant to search or any place or seize any person or things shall issue without describing the place to be searched or the persons to be seized. And instead of saying particular, you know, using the word um, particularly or whatever, in invoking that concept, they say as near as may be, um, which I don't know exactly what that means, but probably the same thing, nor without probable cause. So you've got both the particularity required at least ostensibly, and the probable cause uh, that would be absolutely important um, and supported by oath or affirmation reduced to writing. Now, here's one thing I want to point out, right? Because of the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution, they cannot have a search and seizure clause that would allow their people, that would afford less protection that would allow their officers to do something that officers would be prohibited from doing under the Fourth Amendment, right? All a state can do is raise the bar. States can give people more protection than the Fourth Amendment. They can give people more protection than federal statute, but they can never give them less. And so the Colorado Constitution, regardless of how it's written, could never be interpreted in a way that would provide um, people with less protection than what they're given under the Fourth Amendment. I think that's really, really important um, to point out. So notwithstanding the fact that, you know, the words are a little bit different, this can, even though we don't know, you know, when they say as near as maybe, is that the same thing as um, particularly, the word particularly? Well, it, it has to be. Um, it can't be less than that, right? And in some states, you get the Fourth Amendment, their Fourth Amendment equivalent that looks almost identical to the Fourth Amendment, and yet their Supreme Court has interpreted um, their, 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 their equivalent of the Fourth Amendment to give people more protection than what the Supreme Court has given them. And that's, wh that's why you get these search and seizure issues where the Supreme Court has said that you can do something, but the state has said you cannot. And a, a very good example of that is the state of Vermont. Um, their 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 Fourth Amendment equivalent reads very much like the United States Constitution Fourth Amendment equivalent, but it's been interpreted by their Supreme Court to give people more protection um, than what the Fourth Amendment gives them, and that's why we get these situations to where you know when you ask for consent to search, it doesn't have to be in writing according to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the Fourth Amendment doesn't require that, but some states do, right? It's a function of their under their function of their state law, uh, and, so, and the fourth the the Supreme Court has said uh, Pennsylvania versus Mims and Maryland v. Wilson. You can order the driver out of the car. You can order the passenger out of the car. A lot of states have said have said no, you can't. Not unless you've got a reasonable suspicion that they're involved in criminal activity other than the traffic stop. And so we get there. The states have laws too. And a lot of times they mirror the federal constitution, right? But uh, they they can only give more protection uh, and never less. And that's a really um, important thing to point out, a starting point um, for what's for what's kind of coming up here. So let's take a look at the bill itself. There are several provisions. I know we're here to talk about qualified immunity, but um, to the extent that um, that this it, it's it's goes into a lot more detail than just that. Um, to to the extent that it does that, it's important 
um, for us to look at some of these other things. And I, I, I plucked out a few nuggets that I thought I would um, that I would mention and that I would talk to you about. Now, the uh, one section, the section you see listed on your screen, the 2431902, deals with body-worn cameras. And there's a whole bunch of language um, about a body-worn body -worn cameras. In fact, it's the first part when you read through this thing, you know, um, the, the first uh, five or six pages deal with uh, these body-worn body cameras. And there's some interesting things that, that they make it mandatory. Um, and in order to in order to penalize people, um, the officers, if they're if they they talk about when when it should be turned on, when it shouldn't be turned on, and there's some there's a, a little bit of wiggle room, but not much uh, discretion for that. Um, but they have all of these provisions for what happens if it's not on. If it should be on and it's not on, they're going to punish the police officer. Um, First of all, there is a presumption, an inference of wrongdoing. There is an it, it creates what the what they call in um uh, in section three uh, of this 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 section Roman numeral three it says um, if a peace officer fails to activate the body worn camera or dash camera as required by this section or tampers with the footage or operation when required, there is a permissive inference in any investigation or any um, legal proceeding excluding criminal proceedings against the police officer so it excludes criminal prosecution but in any other type of proceeding there is a, um, a permit an inference that the missing footage would have reflected misconduct by the peace officer so there is a, 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 a an inference um, of wrongdoing if it's not turned on when um, the statute says that it that it should be there is also uh, they also create uh, uh, the ability to exclude statements uh, an officer um, uh, will not be permitted uh, un unless the court finds some other uh, reason to do it i mean there's a it's it's still uh, the court can can rule on it for other reasons but uh, under the statute if the body camera should be on and it's not on and this person makes the defendant makes statements um, that were not captured on the body camera because it was turned off. The officer will be excluded um, um, from testifying about the statements that were that were made by the defendant if they're not on the recording. So that's a that's a pretty uh, a pretty significant uh, step. And then also, um, what can happen? What can happen to you? Uh, procedurally and administratively for the failure um, to follow the statute and um, basically you can be fired for it I mean uh, up to and including removal um, uh, administrative punishment for it so they're really really big there's also a lot of there's also a lot of information about the disclosure of the video when when the, the video has to be disclosed whether or not it can be edited um, all kinds of things things to where um, they're clearly very, very keen on the the capture and the retention of encounters, and it's any encounter, right? Um, it can a consensual encounter. It doesn't have to be a criminal encounter. I mean, it's a very, very broad um, section of the bill. I wanted to make you aware of that. Now hey, we get into uh, the meat. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just want to jump in because I I just think it occurs to me that. If you're not a police officer in Colorado, right, and you're 
sitting here thinking, why do I care what they're doing in Colorado? It might, it might be helpful just to explain or point out that if Colorado is a front runner, right, with this type of a bill, with these types of provisions, um, and your state is considering them, and I think if you look at the political climate and what's going on, there is somebody in every state considering some iteration of these provisions. Right. Um, what they're going to do is they're going to say to their staff, get out there and see what already exists. Go out there and find, figure out who's already drafted this, who's already done this, right? And bring me back, every, it's just like court decisions, right? It might not be binding on you, Colorado, but it will be influential, right? It will have some value for the lawmakers in your state um, or your commonwealth where you work. So, so lest you think this is irrelevant, right? This is a front runner of these types of bills. It's gonna set the standard moving forward, right? right? Other, for other folks. Uh, it, 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 well, it provides a blueprint. And then yeah. to the and to the extent they want to wait and see what shakes out, sure. you know, are there, because when, as with any legislation, you can't imagine all the different, you can't, um, you can't imagine all the different implications or ramifications. Um, and so it might be that they want to tweak it a little and then they'll, they'll look and see, well, where did they have problems? No, but you're right. It provides a blueprint. Yeah. Um, and it and it kind of paves the way. So just because I'll be in Colorado in August, I'm doing some training up in Fort Collins and then I'll be over on the Western Slope in Rangeley um, uh, uh, training, uh, doing some training for the National Park Service out there. Um, and uh, um, and I know I, I usually when I'm doing the training in Colorado, I know I'm going to be getting a lot of questions about the, the concept, oh, yeah. even though the training doesn't have anything to do with officer liability. I know I'm going to get flooded with that. So um I mean, it's a it's a big big deal, um, and for reasons that some reasons I haven't even made apparent yet, it's going to be um, it's a big big deal. Body worn cameras have been a hot button topic for years, for the last few years. I mean, whether or not you let the officers review their video on the body camera before they can do their use of force report has been a big big topic. Um, I mean, you, all kinds of experts coming out one way or the other, and um, and folks saying that, you know, it's unfair to let them not look at it. Well, if they look at it, they can get false memories. You got the, you know, the, the doctor, um, Elizabeth Lofton angle thing going on with the, the false memory things. Um, I mean, that's been a debate that's been going on when I've been going to Alita conferences and IATALYS conferences at the International Association of Chiefs of Police, um, conference every year that I go to, I'm, I'm members of all three of those organizations and, uh, um, and I know that was a really hot button topic and people trying to figure out what they're going to do with their body camera video. Um, I know there are policy. A lot of agencies have policy regarding um, body camera video, but this isn't policy now. This is a statute. I mean, mm -hmm. it is a it's a law. There's a difference between violating a policy and violating a law. And um, um, and uh, it's a it's a big, big deal. So uh, um and all the presumptions against the law enforcement officer. Uh, I mean, that's certainly something to to to, to point out. Um, so the the next part of the bill, the bill that's really important, and the one that you're most of you are here to uh, to to talk about, um, is the civil action for the deprivation of rights. Now, um, it's there's some interesting um, aspects of this. Actually, amends the current statute, so it's an addition. They, they have gone in and added it. This, this gets added to law that already exists. They already have, um, they already have, uh, they already have uh, st uh, statutes regarding um, 
civil liability for uh, doing things, not doing things. There, there are other statutory limitations um, on um, on liability um, and uh, and immunities, and the, they made it clear that does not apply here. The first thing that's important to point out, um, it, the title is Civil Action for Deprivation of Rights. Article, this, uh, I put that in parentheses, that's not in the bill. I, I wanted you to know it applies to all of Article 2, all of it, not just the search and seizure part of it, all of Article 2. Um, every every section in Article Two um, it up applies to this. They have a they have the equivalent of they have the equivalent of the uh, of self incrimination clause. They've got the equivalent of the Second Amendment, uh, the right to bear uh, bear arms. They've got a whole bunch. In fact, they have more. Uh, the Bill of Rights is eight. I know you said we say ten, but the Ninth and Tenth Amendment don't really grant individual liberties or freedoms the, like the first eight do. Um, there are more than that in Article 2. I mean, Article 2's got a lot more to it than that. So um, it's it's for any violation of any right that's granted in Article 2, which includes Section 7, which I talked about first, which is their search and seizure equivalent. But it's limited to peace officers only. So this civil action, this is creating a cause of action in Colorado State Court, but it is only a cause of action for police officers. If anyone else, any other state government actor deprives someone of their rights um, under uh, Article II rights, they will not be limited by this bill, by this law. Um, the, the other statutory limitations and immunities will apply to them and they'll be protected. So it's only the police officers that are singled out, but it's not just for use of force. Um, but anyway, um, so it's limited to peace officers only. It also includes a failure to intervene. So this, the civil suit is both for the officer uh, who does it and the officer who fails to intervene in order to prevent it. Um, all the rights under Article 2 um, and, and again, other statutory limitations and immunities do not apply. So every other statutory prote protection that would be available for the Colorado police officer is now off the table. And qualified immunity, point blank, is not a defense. So it totally eliminates qualified immunity as a defense. If the plaintiff prevails against the officer, they get all of their attorney's fees. But if the defense, if the officer prevails, they only get their fees if the if the deemed uh, the court if the suit is deemed to be frivolous. Well, Poppy, you and I both know that if um if a lawsuit is legally frivolous, I mean it'll get dismissed at at um, usually at a, a much earlier stage. Um, so so if the defend if the officer goes to trial the civil suit goes to trial and wins, the jury comes back and finds in favor of the defendant, the defend the officer doesn't get the fees as a prevailing party. So the prevailing the the prevailing party uh section of this is a little stacked as well. And um I don't know if that's because of the identification agreement or not, but it is. So the the next part of this is really, really important. Because everything up to this point sounds really, really bad, and I and I and I personally think that it is, uh, and I'll tell you why. I'll go ahead and put myself out there, right? What did Pearson v. Callahan? What did the court tell us was the purpose of qualified immunity? 
the whole purpose of qualified immunity. Remember what I said in the slide? Qualified immunity balances two important interests, the need to hold public officials accountable when they exercise power irresponsibly, and the need to shield officials from harassment, distraction, and liability when they perform these duties, right, reasonably. This is not, this is going to take away that balance, the ability to harass and impede uh, law enforcement agencies um, is going to be removed from this. Now, um, the liability, protect them from liability, they still get a degree of liability protection, but they get it through indemnification instead of immunity. Remember, I told you qualified immunity protects you from the process, right? The Colorado Senate bill removes the, the removes the qualified immunity, but then tries to protect them from the payment, from the, the penalty by indemnifying. So if the officer gets sued and the officer loses and the person who sued the officer gets a judgment against that officer, then the agency will indemnify the officer um, um, for the uh, amount that the officer owes. And so that's a little bit, a little ray of sunshine in an otherwise dark cloud. Um, but there's a caveat. If the agency determines, and this is an agency determination, so, you know, I'll leave, I'll just let that hang like that, right? If the agency decides that the officer did, um, did not act in good faith, then they can reduce the amount that they're, they identify, they can leave the officer with either 5% of the judgment or $25,000, whichever is less. And so if there's a judgment, um, if there's a, a judgment, you know, for a half a million dollars or more, um, um, and, the, and the agency says, well, you didn't act in good faith, um, then they could, it could leave the officer with a, a $25,000 that they have to pay out of their own pocket. Um, if the officer is criminally convicted, if there's a criminal prosecution, um, then uh, uh, it and the, and they're convicted, then there's no indemnification. Now, I want to throw something out there. On its face, that sounds perfectly reasonable. Why would we indemnify an officer? Um, why would we indemnify an officer who is criminally convicted? Um, and I and I get it, but there's another side to that as well. And I wonder if anybody else, you know, picked up on this. The state and the agency has a financial interest in prosecuting the officer because if the officer is successfully convicted, now the state doesn't have the agency doesn't have to pay anything. So if they if there's a you know a, if there's a huge verdict against an officer, right, and a, a jury gets a two million dollar verdict or something against an officer, and they can criminally convict the officer, they don't have to pay anything. Um, anyway, I I, I don't want to I don't want to I'm not a conspiracy theory nut, um, but um, that that did kind of that did kind of rub me a little bit. Um, the, the fact they're actually provided a financial incentive um, in order uh, in order to to do that. So there you go. That's the and that's the bill. I mean, that's the that's the um, the concept of the qualified immunity under the bill and what it does. And so um, that's the qualified immunity section of it. And then lastly, we're going to go into the use of force side of it uh, because I, I, I just, um, and I, again, that's just a little bit beyond the scope of what we said we were going to talk about, but they're, they're hand in hand, right? We're talking about qualified immunity for use of force. And now we're talking about 
um, use of force as defined by the Senate bill. Now remember, Colorado through state legislation, through state law, either constitutional law or statutory law, um, their, or their code, they can raise the bar and they can put more restriction on police officers than what, the, than what they have. And they have done that with the use of force section. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about the qualified immunity um, part, um, but the, the, the use of force part um, is really significant too, right? Um, so, and, and I cut and pasted this directly from the statute. I did not capitalize, I know that's the bad etiquette, type etiquette, right? That's like the functional, the text equivalent of screaming. Well, the whole act is screaming. I mean, this is the way it was in the, in the actual statute itself. So peace officers and carrying out their duties shall apply nonviolent means when possible before resorting to the use of physical force. Um, and so uh, they're kind of using, the, they're kind of using the term um, violent as physical force, nonviolent without a lack of physical force, even though it's, you might be arguable that there's violent, uh, there's nonviolent physical force. That's not the way that they're, they're putting it out here. A peace officer may use physical force only if nonviolent means would be ineffective in affecting an arrest, preventing escape, or preventing an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death to the peace officer. So, um, there you go. Um, uh, nonviolent means would be would be ineffective. It's um, the focus isn't on reasonableness. The focus is on necessity. So this is a um, it's like a least restrictive means type of of rule of of law, which um, which in, that's not the rule under that's not the Fourth Amendment rule. That's not the that's not the Graham versus Connor rule, right? Um, the, you don't have it doesn't have to be the least restrictive means. It just has to be reasonable under totality of the circumstances. Uh, and, uh, and use of force, reasonableness is a, is a range, right? It's not a point. It's a range. Um, and, um, and we used to see this a lot, Poppy. You remember, you remember the, the, um, the, the labs that we would do, the judgment shooting labs, the judgment yeah. pistol shooting range labs? That range of you know, yeah. you would show, you would put the same, uh, it's scenario training and they have the little lasers and the guns and the projectors on the walls. And it's really, it's really a very effective, very good. Um, but, you know, I was always, it was always remarkable to me that you could put eight people through the exact same scenario and all eight of them would do something slightly different. And yet all eight of them would have been reasonable mm -hmm. because it was a range of reasonableness. If you, in this range of reasonableness, if you use too much force, um, you it is aggressive and it's excessive and you can get sued, you can get prosecuted, all bad things happen to you. But what about if the degree of force you use is, is, is not enough? Well, that means that you're taking risk and that means you might not go home to your, your wife and kids or your husband and kids or your, um, your partner and um, or uh, you put your partner in, in danger. So um, it just uh, it kind of flies in the face of the concept of range of reasonableness. And um, and it's certainly more than what's required by Graham versus Connor. This one kind of gets you when you first read it. But then it Poppy pointed out to me earlier on, you get to a catch all that comes afterwards. Um, so here's their general rule. A peace officer shall not use deadly force to apprehend a person who is suspected of only a minor or nonviolent offense. Use only the degree of force consistent with minimization of injury to others. 
and ensure that assistance and medical aid are rendered in, um, to any injured or affected persons as soon as practicable, whatever that means. And, um, and so if you read this just on its face and you don't read any further in the, in the, in the bill, then it looks like what it's saying is, is that if you make a try, if you do a traffic stop, which is a minor nonviolent offense, it says not use deadly or physical, deadly physical force to apprehend a person who is suspected of only a minor or nonviolent offense. What if that person pulls a gun on you? In this language, without reading anything else, um, it looks like you lose the ability to use deadly force in self-defense if you stop the person for a minor offense. So on its face, without reading anything more, you kind of get that, you kind of get that, um, you kind of get that uh, impression. Um, let me jump to the catch-all first and I'll come back to this. Um, oops, where is it? Notwithstanding any other provision in this sec, this is a catch-all. If you look, it's it's given a decimal number. It's kind of like they went back in and added this after. I mean, that's what I'm guessing. Otherwise, it wouldn't have a decimal. It'd have its own number, right? They they had these things numbered, and then they went back in and said, "Man, we need to add something because we kind of we kind of forgot about this other section." So Poppy properly pointed out here. Um, that's the that's the Harvard law education over the Florida law, right? That notwithstanding any other provision in this section, a peace officer is justified in um, using deadly force if the peace officer has an objectively reasonable belief that a lesser degree of force is inadequate and the police officer has objectively reasonable grounds to believe and does believe that he or another person is in imminent danger of being killed or receiving serious bodily injury. So that would allow for you, an officer, to use deadly force on a person that they have done a traffic stop. And it was kind of an afterthought um, in, in the section there when they went into the four and a half, um, added to you four and a half afterwards, um, but there it is. But this has problems too. And if you look through this and, and, and you're familiar with the Graham standard, you can see now you've got twice as much of this reasonable belief stuff going on, which we're gonna talk about on the 21st, right? Um, You've got this kind of has an objectively reasonable belief that the lesser degree of force is inadequate. What does that mean? Um, to me, that's that's just the that is the same thing. It's the opposite side of the same coin. That's just, that's a, the same way as saying that the the degree of force has to be reasonable. If the lesser degree of force would be inadequate, I don't know. Maybe it's a gets into the necessity argument. I don't know. We'll have to see how that pans out. But the second part after the and is really important too, because now you're talking about objective and subjective together. It requires both. The peace officer has objectively reasonable grounds to believe, comma, and does believe. That's subjective. Now you've got now you've got the intent of the officer. The actual, and it, it totally removes the reasonable officer thing. This He has to actually subjectively believe it. It's not enough that the reasonable officer would. He has to have, or she has to have believed it him or herself. Um, and that uh, he or another person is in imminent danger of being killed. So it's a real interesting way of, of, of putting it together there. Um, the chokehold language is interesting. Um, I, I want to point that out only because... It includes it also in the chokehold stat. It prohibits chokeholds, and it also it uses chokehold to define 
the um, uh, the technique of putting of 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 stopping the flow of blood to the brain versus the carotid arteries, right? When they the sleeper hold, when they they put them in the hold and they apply the pressure, and um, when they reduce the blood flow, it causes them to pass out, um, which isn't a chokehold. It kind of looks you got your arm around someone's neck, so it kind of looks like a chokehold, but they're not being choked in the traditional sense. Well, in the Colorado statute, it doesn't, the, the traditional sense um, doesn't, it, that's covered as well as the, the application of the use of that, the, the sleeper hold. Okay, um, and there was, uh, there was one more, I believe. Yeah, we already, we already covered that. So I think, I think we're good. Um, we're good on that front. Okay, what, what do you think about all this, Poppy? So I don't think I have, I mean, you know, without delving too much into my personal beliefs, I don't have as, I think I see what they were trying to do here. And, yeah. you know, I, like I said, I, I am married to a police officer who worked midnight weekends. I am well versed in the experience of waking up and hoping your loved one is okay. In DC, uh, right? In DC in the middle of the yeah. night. Um, yeah. And so I'm, you know, I, I hope, it's helpful to understand where I'm coming from, but I also, I have a child, right? I have a child who's rambunctious and I can see him. <laughs> I mean, I, I can, I don't know. I feel like we may, it's not impossible for us to have future interactions with the police. So I do see this I feel <laughs> on both sides and I, you know, I, I think I understand what they were getting at here. I think I, I don't, you know, I don't know. And all the law enforcement training I've done, all the officers I've worked with, now I'm a lawyer. So maybe comments are guarded around me. But I don't remember meeting any officers who at least said explicitly that they wanted to hurt people, right? You know, right. Or, or, and I never had that impression, right? And I do remember having conversations with a lot of officers who were as baffled by the reasonable person standard. Well, if you really start to dive into it, what does this mean? Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to try to add guidance and additional uh, detail and instruction and direction into um, a standard, right? As long as that guidance and direction matches up with, you know, real world factors. So I, I have some concerns about the language that I raised uh, with you. I don't know if it's uh, just sloppily written in places or, um, or, or if I'm reading it incorrectly, but I think there are some problems with the language. And I also, you know, we've, we've talked about this, Bruce. I don't know what a necessity standard, I think, can be problematic uh, because I'm not sure that human cognition enables us to know when things are necessary. I'm not sure in certain situations, especially those as described by the court in Graham as tense and rapidly evolving, that anyone, a police officer or otherwise, can do anything more than act as reasonably as possible. So, I, and, and we're not, remember, we're not talking colloquially here. We're talking standards that will be used in a court of law to determine whether someone is liable or in the case of this language, there's a lot of references to criminal liability, right? So right. Um, not just civil liability. So I think we need to be very careful in these statutes about the language that we use and what we're asking people to be able to do um, because we can't, it's not fair to ask someone to do something they actually can't do. Uh, that said, I think it's equally unfair to give someone a broad standard, like behave like a reasonable officer and, right. and essentially throw them to the wolves, right? When, when, as we've discussed a little bit previously, societal ideas change. So I, you know, I think that 
I think that there may have been some good intentions here. I think the execution is a little problematic. I'll just, so I'm not being vague, I'll point out one of the things that jumped out at me right away, and I don't have control of the slides, so bear with me, but um, there's there's some language in the um, catch-all, right? Yeah. This notwithstanding that says, and this is, this is super, super normal stuff. Yeah, I think you had it on the catch-all, right? It basically says that- I, I'll find not, it. Right, notwithstanding all the other restrictions um, that we've put in here, if you, the officer, apparently if you're a male officer, but we're gonna assume Colorado men, all gendered officers, um, or another person, if, if you reasonably uh, and subjectively believe that you or someone else is in imminent danger of, of being killed or receiving serious bodily injury, you can use deadly force, right? So to protect presumably yourself or that other person. Earlier in the bill, um, there's some language about deadly, you know, when deadly force should not be used, right? So we're going to assume they mean what they say here, and this will trump this catch-all. But if you go to one of the earlier provisions where it talks about restricting the use of deadly force, um, can you go back a couple of slides, Bruce? Sure. If you don't mind, it's easier to see. Um, not the chokehold one. There, is that it? No. I don't know which one it is, but in any event, there's one where they say you, you, you can't use deadly force if it creates, if it's going to create a risk of death or serious injury, you might have been on it, to another person. Right, right? there. See, there we go, right. So a peace officer is justified in using deadly force um, and it's so long as roll down, you know, to see the force employed does not create a substantial risk of injury to other persons. Well. Right. Those of you who are law enforcement officers who are listening, you know, you certainly know that these situations can coexist pretty easily. Immediately, a situation that one of the officers I worked with was involved in comes to mind. And this is a real, this was a real situation. I can't remember the exact weapon, but a sharp-edged weapon where an individual who was seemingly not in his right mind, whether that was a mental health issue or a, a substance issue, was running at a crowd with, it was a, a sword maybe or a machete. Um, and the officer's only means of stopping this individual who was you know, appearing as though he was going to injure many, potentially kill people in the crowd, was to, to fire his weapon at the individual and therefore in the direction of the crowd, right? This all happens quickly. Um, there are distances involved, right, that are relevant. So what do you do under the Colorado Senate bill? Because if that officer uses his service weapon to stop this individual from reaching the crowd with the, the sword or the machete. He has to fire in the direction of the crowd. I don't care how good of a shot you are. Yeah. There's a risk that you're going to yeah. injure someone else in the crowd, right? So I yeah. guess you go well, with I the call right at the end that says you can do it. Um, but it, there's just language in here that's that seems self-contradictory, right? And so or contradictory, and so. Yeah. And they, they tried to, I think, the, the notwithstanding any other provision language clearly is going to make this uh, trump the others. But right. I, I, well, you know how I feel about the whole reasonable officer standard. Right. Um, I think it's great on paper, but I think it's very difficult for officers to apply, especially in light of qualified right. immunity issues that we'll talk about on the 21st. Um, so I'm all for doing giving more guidance and not being so vague. I just don't think this does it. I think this makes things more vague, and it also it also 
adds, uh, it also creates a situation to where there is no longer a reason, reasonableness is no longer a range. When you're talking about necessity, and that, and they are, and they do it again here, right? An objectively reasonable belief that a lesser degree of force is inadequate. So basically what they're saying is, is that they have, there has to be an objectively reasonable belief that the degree of force is necessary. And this right. is, that gets back to necessity versus reasonableness, which I am, I am not in favor of at all. And, um, and I think that creates all kinds of problems. And then, and then they, after the end, they add, they make it both a subjective and an objective. I mean, as bad as objectively reasonable is, then they're making it subjective and make it one or the other, you know, but you're going to make it both. I, I, um, I just don't, I just, I don't think that what they're doing has helped the issue that you and I discussed right. with respect to the reasonable officer standard. I mean, it's, um, but anyway, um, we can, that can, that something we can uh, talk about for hours um, on a later date. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and wrap up real quick. I want to again, remind you of the, the two training, uh, sessions that are coming up and um, and encourage you to contact us comms at lea.agency you can use that email address to reach me any of us if you have a question for poppy um, you can use that uh, email address it comes to straight to leah one and and we'll be happy to answer any questions that you've had uh, you have on that and again these uh these two courses you can find out more information about both of these on um the Leo One website. If you don't get the Blue Flash newsletter, some of you out there might not get the Blue Flash. Please, um, um, please sign up for that, and uh, that comes out every couple of weeks, and it's uh, um, providing you legal updates. Okay, um, I want to thank you. Thank you for taking the time to uh, join us today. I want to thank you for what you do. Um, a lot of uh, the folks out there, I know there's a lot of um, a lot of um, concern. And um, and rightly so, and it's a very tumultuous times, and uh, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of very vocal people. Um, but there's a, a very a very vocal anti-police crowd out there, but there's also a, a number of folks like me um, who might not quite be so vocal, um, but are, are fully behind you and understand and uh, appreciate you and appreciate what you do. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.
This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.